Uh, about three weeks ago, on April the 18th, uh, 2014, there was uh, an avalanche in on Mount um, Everest, uh, you know, the highest mountain in the world, and it killed 16 uh, trekking guides. It's the greatest tragedy that's ever happened in one event on Mount Everest, but it's a very dangerous place, obviously, to climb, and that's what makes the story of the mountain climber, Allison Levine, so amazing. Uh, she is a 48-year-old mountain climber, and she has climbed Mount Everest two times. First time was in 2002, and the most recent time was in 2010. Uh, by the time she climbed Everest the first time, she had already climbed uh, six of the highest peaks uh, on the seven continents of the world. And so uh, she was already a well-versed mountain climber. But what makes this story even more amazing is that she was born with a hole in her heart. And not only that, she has this uh, disease, neurological disease, uh, that keeps blood flow from going to her fingers and her toes, especially in cold temperatures. And here she is climbing uh, at, you know, five and a half miles high on a mountain. But her physical issues have not really been her biggest concern. Her biggest concern has been this question that has been persisting with her, and it's this, why do I climb these mountains? There's got to be something good that can come from this that extends beyond me just learning some great lessons and enjoying myself doing what I love doing. If not, climbing these mountains is meaningless. It's what you bring down from the mountain that matters. And so she's been really struggling with that. And the answer to her dilemma came in a small village in Uganda, uh, in Africa, uh, at the base of a mountain. You have all these mountains in Uganda. And there, uh, she learned that climbing these mountains is more about impacting lives than it is the actual journey of climbing the mountain. She learned that in this small village, it's taboo for women to climb mountains. And yet here you have uh, this uh, region that is filled with mountains. It's taboo for the women to climb the mountains, in part because they are not perceived to be strong enough to climb these mountains. But here's the dilemma. <coughs> It's in the mountains where you make the money. Uh, there's no other place to make money in this area, but in the mountains you can serve as a high-altitude cook or a porter or a tracking guide. And here these women are cut off from the only source of income. And so Allison Levine uh, started the Climb High Foundation. And she has begun leading these women in to these mountains, and they have most recently climbed Mount Stanley, which is a 16,000-foot mountain in Uganda, 2,000 feet higher than Mount Rainier in Seattle, if you've ever been there. And so she's taken these women up into these mountains, and it's opening these women up to a new way of life. It's providing income for them, and now they essentially have a new lease on life. Allison has learned that it's what you learn from the journey 
of mountain climbing and what you pass on to others from that journey that makes this journey meaningful. Now, Alison Levine may or may not be a Christian. I don't know. I mean, that's, I, I saw a documentary on her. I don't know if she is a Christian. But what she has learned is something very Titus 2-like. That's what she has learned. She has learned something that is very faithful to what Paul is telling us in our passage. A central purpose of our individual journeys is to help those behind us, those who have not yet taken the journey. A central purpose of our individual journeys is so that we can pass the baton to those who are behind us. Years ago, Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article titled, Where Are the, the, the Watts? The W-O-T-T-S. Where are the Watts? Watts referring to the women of Titus 2. She is asking, where are the women in our churches who have taken this mandate seriously to pass the baton, the gospel baton, on to the next generation? Women who have taken the journey but realize the journey is not the end in itself. It's the means to an end. And the means is to pass that baton of the journey on to the next generation. But Titus 2 is going to tell us that, but it's also going to tell us that that's not the end either. Uh, just passing on the baton to the younger generation is not the end in itself. It's the means to an end as well. Titus 2 is about declaring the gospel in our relationships. It's about magnifying the gospel in our churches. And so uh, that's what Titus is about. In fact, Titus uses this language of good works six times. And what we're going to see today is that one of the ways that good works are fostered in the body of Christ is by older women teaching younger women how to walk in the way of the gospel. Now, Titus, just for a little background, is one of three pastoral epistles. First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are the three pastoral epistles, and they essentially have one overarching purpose, and that is the proper ordering of the body of Christ, the proper ordering of the local church. These letters are written to pastors for the proper ordering of the local church. But there is distinction between the letters. In 1 Timothy, the emphasis is on protecting sound doctrine. One of the real methods of the devil is to seek to infiltrate churches with heresy, damnable doctrine. And so 1 Timothy, the emphasis is on protecting sound doctrine. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, in fact, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus that you may teach certain men not to teach strange doctrine. And so that becomes the emphasis of 1 Timothy, protecting sound doctrine. 2 Timothy, the emphasis is on preaching sound doctrine. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Therefore, preach the Word. 
in season and out of season. So 1 Timothy is about protecting sound doctrine. 2 Timothy is about preaching sound doctrine. And in Titus, the emphasis is on practicing sound doctrine. Again, this language of good works is conveyed six times in uh, the, the letter to Timothy. And this is confirmed in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice, but as for you, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, this word, uh, this verse frames the rest of chapter 2, including our present passage. And the word but there is very important. He says, but as for you. That is, he is contrasting Timothy uh, from the false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16. Notice, they profess to know God. What does that mean? They profess to be Christians. They profess to have had a moment, a time, where they were converted to Jesus Christ. They profess to know God. But notice, they deny Him by their works. You can profess all day, but your works betray what you really believe. They deny Him by their works. And so there, my concern is there are many Southern Baptists who have made this profession of faith, but there's never been any works that flow out of that faith. You can profess Jesus and deny Him by your works. Well, here Paul is referring to the false teachers. He says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, the emphasis is on good works. Sometimes we don't emphasize obedience in the Christian life. In, in the circles that I run in that are all about the gospel, all about grace, grace goes public. Alright? The gospel goes public. And when you deny Him by your lack of good works, it likely evidences an unregenerate heart. And He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine." Again, this sound doctrine infers that a person who understands true doctrine, who has understanding of sound doctrine, is converted to Jesus Christ. Now, this word sound is a very important word in Paul's letters. Um, it literally means healthy. You may even have a footnote in your Bible that says this can be translated as healthy. Interestingly... Um, we don't want to fall into a word study fallacy here or any kind of... But the, we get the word uh, hygiene from this, this particular uh, word. So, hygienic doctrine, if you will. It's healthy doctrine. And this word is found nine times in Paul, all of his letters, and five times in the letter to Titus. In the Gospels... Uh, it oftentimes refers to a life that has been restored to health through the miraculous work of Jesus. Now, it is a healthy body. He has restored it. For Paul, it speaks to sound doctrine eight times in his letters. 
So when he talks about the word sound, he's referring to sound doctrine. But one time, it refers to being sound in speech. Notice in verse 8, in fact, of this passage, he speaks there to Titus, and he says, Be a model of good works in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. And so for Paul, to be sound is to be sound in doctrine and to be sound in speech. A person who's not sound in speech is not sound in doctrine. Alright? Again, you can profess to know God, but by your works or lack of works, deny Him. One who is sound in faith, that is one who has truly been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, will go public with works and sound speech. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk it's a verse we have memorized in our home with our children. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That word unwholesome refers to rotten vegetables that stinketh, if you want to speak in the King James. Um, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That is sound speech. If your words do not edify, then they're not sound. Okay? And so sound uh, doctrine, sound works, sound speech. And so Titus now is going to be admonished to teach that which accords with sound doctrine. Alright? And that's what Titus 2 is about the practical duties that arise from sound doctrine. Titus. In fact, you could say um, that Titus could be uh, broken down and outlined in this way. I think it may be on the board. Titus 1, in particular verses 5 to the end of the chapter, is about sound doctrine and duty with pastors. All right? In Titus chapter 2, um, the chapter is about sound doctrine and duty in the local church, the congregation. And then in chapter 3, it's about sound doctrine and duty in the world. So we have this responsibility with pastors, responsibility in the local church, and this responsibility uh, in the world. And in Titus 2... Doctrine and duty in the congregation involves, yes, four categories of people, but you could even say six categories of people. You've got older men. You've got older women. You've got younger women. You have younger men. And then you have Titus, who is the pastor. And then you've got slaves. Paul is not advocating slavery. He is just speaking to the slaves in the reality of the day. Here's how you magnify God's name. Here's how you adorn the gospel of God, even in your difficult circumstances. We're going to look at two of those today. We're going to look at older women, and we're going to look at younger women for the purposes of Mother Day. Now, the first one we see here is that older women who accord with sound doctrine. Older women who accord with sound doctrine. That's verses 3 
and 4. Verse 1, he addresses the older men. Men, we'll just speak to that briefly. They're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. That's a very important word in Titus. Sound in faith. The older men should be the model of what it means to be a theologian in the church. We, we have people today who are scared of theology in the church. My goodness, that's what a man's to be. A spiritual leader is to be a man who is sound in faith. You're able to explain to others the mysteries of the faith. You can open your Bible and show them the important realities of redemption. You're sound in faith, in love, steadfastness. And then, older women, verse 3, older women likewise... Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women. Now, who are the older women? Uh, when we were reading the text earlier, I didn't look up to see who the older women were. All right, I wasn't cutting my eyes uh, at who the older women is. But I think we can take an educated guess at who the older women are. Childbearing typically ends, obviously with exceptions, around 40 to 45. Which means that child rearing, the child rearing years, will typically end at oldest around 60. In fact, if you look in 1 Timothy 5... He speaks to the widows who qualify for uh, assistance, financial assistance from the church. And if you see in 1 Timothy 5 verse 9, it says the widows who are enrolled, if they're not less than 60 years of age. And so there is some subjectivity to this, but it's likely a woman who has had children and her children have now moved on, she has raised them, and they have moved on, uh, and she now has more time that has been freed to her. And so, as the children grow up, the women's focus may become less defined by family responsibilities. Of course, once a mother, always a mother. Uh, we're not denying that. And once a grandmother, you have, you've taken on new responsibilities as well. But there may be, and likely, uh, a period now where life is less demanding when it comes to family responsibilities. Now, this can lead, and I have seen this, it can lead to feelings of low self-image. Um, it can lead to feelings of, of lack of worth, loneliness, uselessness, and self-pity. Retired women across the world have those feelings after their children have moved on. And it's because they haven't read Titus 2. Because Paul is giving us clearly the anecdote for that kind of mindset. Once your children have moved on, your life is not over. Your ministry is not over. You have a ministry... And it's centered in the local church. And he makes it clear what that is here. Now there are three areas of conduct that are singled out, geared and directed towards the older women. Notice first of all, they're to be reverent in behavior. 
This word reverent is only found one time in the New Testament. It's right here. Okay? Um, but literally, uh, the word means befitting a holy person or a priestess in a temple. That is, an older woman's life is to be like a priestess serving in the temple. In fact, that word temple, the, the root is found in this word. Um, an older woman who is obeying the mandate of the gospel is like a woman whose life is a, an expression of worship to God in the temple. They are to conduct their lives as if they are in full-time temple service. They're to live their lives in a way that reminds others, most particularly younger women, what it means to worship in the temple. In fact, if you go back uh, to 1 Timothy 5, where it's referring to the older widows, 60 and older, you can see something of what they are about. They have set, verse 5, their hope on God and they continue in supplications and prayers night and day. A woman who is reverent in behavior is characterized by her prayer life. She is a woman on her knees. Her life is demonstrated in utter dependency and desperation on the living God. And then in verse 9, uh, this woman, or verse 10, has a reputation for good works. Shows hospitality. Washes the feet of the saints. She serves the body of Christ. She cares for the afflicted. And has devoted herself to every good work. That is the woman who is reverent in her behavior. Secondly, notice they are to avoid two moral failures. They're not slanderers or slaves to much wine. The word for slanderers is used eight times in the Apostle Paul's writings. Three times it refers to a person whose words are filled with gossip and, and slander. Words that are not befitting sound doctrine. Unsound speech. Um, what's interesting is that this word is used 34 times in the New Testament to refer to the devil. Okay? So he is saying this woman of reverent behavior is not a woman of devilish speech. When we slander, when we gossip, we are acting like the devil. Now, those are very fearful words because those are the kind of things we take too lightly in the church. If a woman came into the church and she was inebriated, we would not stand for that. But a woman who slanders, or a man who slanders, we kind of yawn at it. Okay? And Paul says this is devilish speech. Not only that, she's not addicted to much wine. Now, that was an issue in Crete. Okay? Uh, to Cretanize with someone was to lead them into this kind of behavior. And this kind of behavior is not necessarily epidemic in Baptist life, where we have so emphasized, probably legalistically so, the temperance movement. But I would say an implication is a woman who is not enslaved to alcohol nor any other thing. 
Okay? She is a reverent woman. She has mastery in her life. She's not under dominion. She has taken dominion through the rule of Christ. And going back to verse 1, in fact, of chapter 1, this is a woman who has a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. She lives, let me give you a term that was used by uh, Martin Luther. She lives quorum Deo, before the face of God. Her life is an expression of worship. And in that, she expresses that uh, quorum Deo by going quorum mundo, before the face of people. When you live before the face of God vertically, it will express itself by going horizontally. And that's exactly what we see in the third part of the mandate to her. Instead of using her words to slander, okay, uh, they are used, notice, to teach what is good. She's a teacher. Uh, They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. Train the young women. And this word train... Uh, is a very rare term. Uh, it only occurs here in the New Testament. And it's related to the word self-control. And also the word wisdom. Uh, literally, this woman is, has the responsibility to wise the younger gener- generation up. To teach them self-control. Uh, she has a teaching ministry. Um, and she is to teach that which is good. What is that which is good? Well, in Titus, it's the gospel. It relates to ultimate things, okay? Things related to the gospel and redemption. Ultimate things. And I would like just to share a couple of thoughts, observations I've made as I thought about this passage uh, this week. Uh, A life that accords with sound doctrine. That's what he's talking about. By the way, that's the only life that flourishes. A life that, uh, that accords with sound doctrine is the only life that flourishes because this is the way God intended it to be. A life that accords with sound doctrine, a sound life, is a life that does not use your older years, alright, for personal ambition. That's epidemic in our country. It's the time where I have freedom to do what I want to do. Self-indulgence. You will not flourish doing that, no matter how free it may feel. I had lunch this week with an 85-year-old missionary named Elsa. Elsa Peterson. She grew up in Vienna, Austria. She was there when the Germans invaded Austria. She remembers it vividly. And she's been a missionary for 30 years in Haiti. She cooked me lunch every day. I was at her house and and cooked me dinner Sunday night. What a servant she is. 30 years ago, she was a layperson. And she was retiring. She and her husband were retiring at the same year. They were living an upper middle class life in Burlington, Vermont. They had this beautiful home overlooking the ocean. And they were in the arts and living the high life. One Sunday night at church, an evangelist is speaking, and he is challenging 
retirees to pray about going on the mission field. Now, she's 55. She's ready to retire. Enjoy the good life. Her husband nudges her and he says, Is he talking about us? And she looked over him. She said, I was thinking the same thing. A year later, a year later, they're in Haiti, third world country. And she's been there 30 years. Her, um, her husband died 11 years into their mission. Okay? Her children called her and said, Mom, are you ready to come home now? She said, I am home. And I told her Friday, as I'm leaving, I said, Madam Pete, that's what they call her in French. Madam Pete, and she has the accent of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just the female version. I can't even imitate it. I'm, ha I'm hamstrung by my Alabama accent. I would, But, Madam Pete, I said, do you realize that your life for 55 years was an investment in the kingdom? You raised family, you served the, the, the living God through the local church, but do you realize that the last 30 years of your life, life of retirement for most people, are what's going to define your life? And she said, absolutely. They've already got a plot for her there on the Baptist Haiti mission in Haiti. That's where she will be buried because that ministry that came in the retirement years is what defines her life. Older women have a ministry, a vital ministry, if God's name is going to be glorified and magnified in the church and in the world. Not only that, we see the importance of community, don't we? You can't grow without church life. There are people uh, who, who say it's legalistic to talk about going. No, it's New Testament. Now, going to church does not impress God. You don't earn favor with God by going to church. There are people who think that, and that's, that's fundamentally flawed. That's heretical in itself. But you can't grow without the body. It's just that simple. You can't persevere in the faith without the body. Hebrews chapter 10. He clearly says that in a warning passage. And so this reminds us that we need each other. And in particular, the younger women need the older women. That brings us to the second point. We've got to fly here. We see that younger women who accord with the gospel, with the doctrine of God. Notice the second part of verse 4. The older women are to train the young women... To love their husbands and children. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where women are commanded to love. Usually it's men who are commanded to love. We're the, we're the knuckleheads, okay? Now, keep in mind, this is speaking specifically to wives. That doesn't mean everybody's called to be a wife. There may be women, and there's certainly men... Who God calls to singleness. You're not inferior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, in fact, says that's a gift. It's a grace gift to be called to singleness. And that's another sermon for another day. 
uh, singleness is a gift for the kingdom because you can invest all of your life into the kingdom without the distractions of family, okay? But in particular, he's speaking to, to married women, and this certainly has implications not only for unmarried women, but for men themselves. But he says here, they're to love. Now, uh, there are seven characteristics of the younger woman here. Four of them refer to family. And so what we see here is the married woman's uh, ministry uh, is going to be carried out in the younger years primarily in the home. Certainly not divorced from the local church, but primarily in the home. And I think it's intentional that she starts, or he starts here with calling older women to teach younger women how to love, to, to love their husbands and their children. Now, in one sense, mothers naturally do that. But we're talking about the kind of love, as verse 10 says, adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. We're not just talking about natural love. We're talking about supernatural love. And this kind of love, the great barrier is the ego. The love of self. That's why many older people spend their retirement years serving themselves in self-indulgence. This kind of love that Paul is calling for here is the death to self. You put yourself on the cross. And it's the death of self that creates the growing conditions for love. Okay? Now, it's important for us to understand that. Older women are to model the kind of life by giving their lives away to the next generation that in so doing, it teaches younger women what cross-love looks like, what sacrificial love looks like. Subconsciously, we are allergic to that kind of love. We absolutely are because we know deep down it requires the death of self which is at the center of this love. But here's the key. When we do that, and we learn this from the older generations, Paul, that's Paul, Paul's design, God's design, as we see from Paul. As we learn how to do this, instead of fighting the death that is required to love this way, we embrace it, and what happens? Resurrection. That's the gospel way. You die to self, you begin to experience resurrection in your heart. You begin to love people you didn't love before. You begin to love your husbands and your children in ways you didn't love before. The cross has to come before resurrection. We want the resurrection first, don't we? You have to die first. Where do we learn that? We learn it from the older generation. It doesn't come naturally. Older people give their lives away. They lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel in serving the younger generation and they begin to experience resurrection in their own lives. And we see that and we are compelled by it. What Paul is referring to here. Keep in mind we're on display. Ephesians 3.10 says that we're on display to the angels. That's another sermon for another day. But this is a key point in this chapter. Notice the second part of verse 5 he says that the Word of God may, may not be reviled. Verse 7, he says, Show yourself in a model of good works. And then in verse 10, That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're on display. And in this case, we're on display to an unbelieving world. And when an unbelieving world knows that we're a professing Christian, and but we don't display any more capacity to love than they do. Okay? 
why should they desire, why should they want our Redeemer? Notice as well, they're to teach, verse 5, to be self-controlled. We could spend a lot of time there, but uh, this is a quality you see throughout out the uh, book of uh, Titus. Uh, and it shows the, the ripple effect that the community has. Because in verse 8 of chapter 1, refers to the pastors who must be self-controlled. Okay? And then you see in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, it's the older men who are to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 3, the older women are to be self-controlled by, uh, by the use of their tongues and their behavior. And then you see it even in chapter 2, verse 12, that the grace of God is bringing about self-control. There's a ripple effect in the body. Um, essentially, we need each other. It, you cannot, a Christian cannot grow at home. Christian can own, the growing conditions for the Christian, this is the potted plant, if you will. Okay? These, this is where the conditions are fostered to grow. And the older women are teaching the younger women self-control, but these women are seeing it everywhere. They're seeing it with the pastors. They're seeing it with the older men. They see it everywhere, what self-control looks like. Now, what does this mean, self-control? Essentially, it means being ruled by no one or no thing except King Jesus. That's what it means to be self-controlled. It's self-mastery. It's the restraint one needs to live the disciplined life. The life that is oriented to ultimate things. Discipline towards ultimate things and denial towards temporal and sinful things. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Notice as well, related to self-control, is purity. Younger women are to learn purity. Um, holiness. That's the word for holiness. We don't talk a lot about holiness in the Baptist church. Uh, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're not talking just about positional holiness. I'm holy in Jesus. No, we're talking about a positional holiness that goes horizontal, that goes uh, public. And we don't have time to look at these texts, but this isn't just referring to younger women. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, it refers to men. Men are called to holiness. They're called to purity. Uh, in, in James chapter 3, it refers to this wisdom that is from above that is holy, that is pure and peaceable and gentle. These are the good works that flow out of sound faith. Where do we learn these things? From the older generation. Notice as well, working at home. Well, we don't like that, do we? Working at home. That sounds so demeaning. But there's nothing demeaning about it. Uh, it's the highest calling. Now, I, I think we have to be very careful here. Uh, to impute contemporary debates onto this text. I don't think Paul is saying that women can't have careers. Proverbs 31 does, uh, you know, contradicts that reality or that ment mentality. He's not saying that women cannot work outside the home. That's not what he's saying at all. Uh, but he is saying that the duties at home rank higher for the woman than the career. Okay? If you want to flourish as a woman, and God hasn't called you to singleness, the where you flourish is in the home. Okay? 
That's what he's saying. And, and if you have a career that is distracting that calling, that, that uh, you know, mandate, you need to reevaluate your career. You know, Heather, I was so proud of her six years ago. I'm on my way to the Dove Awards. They, they, the, her group had won the, a Dove Award. They're going to sing right there on the Dove Awards that night. And you don't do this at the Dove Awards, but she retired at the Dove Awards. All right, as I'm driving. As I'm driving to Nashville, she calls me. She said, you're not going to believe this. This is what she said. I just retired. A what? And she did. It's not because she thought having a career was a sin. That's not a sin. There's some of you that have careers. It's not a sin. Heather came to conviction that her highest calling was the home. And the career was taking her away from her highest calling. And I was so proud of her that it was so radical. What she did on her own volition, certainly I prayed about these things, but it was her, her decision is that the rumor got spread in Nashville that I was forcing her home. People couldn't even conceive that she would have done that on her own will. And she came to the conviction that this was what she was called to do. This is the woman, the younger woman. Notice as well, kind, it's the same word that we translate good, good works. Kindness, goodness um, is a heart that's been captured by the gospel and has been melted by the gospel, lives in light of the gospel, and it goes public. Their lives are one of kindness. When you're around this person, the first thing you think, this person is kind. This person is good. This person has the fruit of the Spirit. This person is filled with the Spirit of God. That's what it's referring to. And then, submissive. Submissive to their own husbands. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Just kidding. We, we, treat, these, we treat this like this is some kind of, uh, you know... A jail cell sentence for a woman. It's where women flourish. It's where, it's where God designed it. Women are equal to men. We have different roles. The son submits to the father. 1 Corinthians 11. Is the son inferior to the father? Certainly not equal to the father. Okay? But in Genesis 2, God designed the woman to be the helpmate of the man. They just have different roles. They're equal as the image of God. In Genesis 3, that absolutely um, chaos is created in the home. Chaos is created in relationships. No longer do women uh, submit to men. Their desire is for their husband. And that's not any other desire except to usurp his authority. And in Jesus, God is restoring marriages. In fact, that very word is used in Ephesians 1.22. In Christ's uh, resurrection from the grave, all things have been placed underneath his feet. God is making all things new through Jesus. And one of the evidences of that is restored marriages. As women, filled with the Holy Spirit, captured by the gospel of Christ, now willingly submit to their husbands, reflecting that Christ indeed has been raised from the grave and is victorious. We could say more about that, but we need to move. To the extent that we make our marriages more attractive... We compel our children and we compel the lost to the gospel. This is what this whole text is about. Note the, the purpose clause at the very end here. He says that the word of God may not be reviled. The word there is blasphemed. 
that the word of God may not be blasphemed, younger women, older women must adhere to this mandate. That the word of God may not be blasphemed, you could say it positively, that the word of God may be honored. That the gospel of God may be rightly adorned. That's our purpose in our marriage. It's higher than us. Of course, this text would be incomplete if we didn't have verses 11 to 15. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and to live uh, sensibly, uprightly, uh, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great, great God and Savior, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to present for Himself a people that who are now purified and zealous for good works. It's the grace of God who is at work in us. And here's the good news for our moms, our older women, and our younger women. The grace of God will not allow us to go at this alone. Okay? He's at work. He will empower you. And there's more good news, I think, as well, when we consider the gospel. Because of the gospel, and this is a gospel document... Your righteousness as an older woman and your righteousness as a younger woman displayed in the local church is not what keeps you in God's good graces. Because if it was, none of us would be in God's good graces. Okay? We all fail every day. You have failed. I have failed. I've failed since I've been up here in the pulpit the last 40 minutes. Okay? It's not our good works that keeps us in God's good graces. Every time we come together and we sit under the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word, every time we open our Bibles and read it at home, every time we pray, every time we observe the Lord's table, it's in these times that we are reminded that things between God and us is permanently fixed. Okay? It's permanently fixed. The relationship has been fixed. The debt has been paid. The ledger has been taken away. Alright? That's the freedom here. And now, freed from the bondage of having to obey in order to get God's favor, in order for Him to smile upon us, we can now look at these commands. And they are commands. They're not options. We can look at these commands... Not as conditions that I must meet in order to have God smile upon me, but as directions for loving my neighbor. I have a new love, a love for God through the gospel. And now God wants me to love my neighbor. And He is giving me the directions I need to love my neighbor. Not in order for you to earn favor with Him. If you're in Jesus, you have favor with Him. And your lack of performance will not destroy that favor. Okay? But now He is giving you directions on how to honor Him having received that pardon. In other words, the good works are spontaneously provoked from faith. It's not a part of a transaction I make with God. That transaction is closed. It's so that I can serve others as He has served me. And it's in understanding this we have the first principle 